marriage supper of the Lamb. What an amazing picture this is at the end of the tribulation as we're about to go into the millennium. And in chapter 19, you have this picture of the church celebrating. Uh, you have this picture of, of this glorifying and rejoicing of the Lord. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, we're the body of Christ. We are, uh, as the word of God would put it, the bride of Christ. And so we are unique to Israel. We are unique to the uh, saints from the tribulation. God has uh, different people groups that he's worked with throughout the ages um, and has different programs for those people groups. All of us are connected by grace and faith. Amen? All of us are connected by salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? Um, but we have different programs. And so it's a beautiful passage as we look forward to that time where we will celebrate the salvation that Christ has provided for us uh, by going to the cross, by dying and shedding his blood so that we could have life and life everlasting by believing in him and receiving from him the promise uh, of everlasting, of eternal life, ultimately his life. Uh, I don't know, uh, Steph and I celebrated our 25th uh, anniversary this past December, and so that was a, a really neat marker for us. That was kind of an amazing moment. Uh, yeah, she has stuck with me, <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but I, I remember uh, looking back in just all the different events that took place, I was... Um, you know, boy, we met, I was 19 years old. We were at Liberty University. She robbed the cradle. She's actually one year older than me, if you can believe that. And so I get uh, a lot of fun in teasing her about that. But the point is, um, I remember seeing her for the first time. And I was dating somebody else. And I immediately kind of thought to myself, oh, I'm not supposed to, like, be attracted to her because I'm dating somebody else. You understand what I'm saying? And so that kind of led to where we got connected through various things uh, and different ways. And one of the uh, ways was actually through Romania, interestingly enough, because my father-in-law had been there all the time. I had gone for a, a short trip, vision trip with Liberty University. And when I came back, felt like the Lord had led me to go back with some of my friends for a whole semester. And she and I ended up uh, kind of running into one another in the religion hall at Liberty University. And we started talking and she started to tell me that her father had gone to Romania many times and he'd be happy to talk to me about Romania. And so I ended up calling him and uh, that started our relationship and, and we ended up getting married and it was, it's been a wonderful 25 years. When I was in Pennsylvania, um, we took a period of time while I was in Romania for that three months to pray about whether the Lord wanted us together or not. And I had gone through some things in my life that I was scared of myself. And I didn't want to fall in love too quickly. I also didn't want to get into trouble in the midst of all this stuff. And so we had taken some time to pray. And, and while I was in Romania for three months, uh, the Lord, I think, affirmed uh, clearly to both of us that he wanted us to at least be together and dating, um, leading towards marriage, and we were prayerfully considering that. Um, I'll never forget going home and uh, being at home that particular summer and just miserable. I was miserable. I was probably miserable to be around. And we went to the Shady Maple in Pennsylvania, big smorgasbord, and I couldn't stand it. I didn't want to be there. I was with my brother and my dad, and finally my dad looked at me across the table, and he looks at me, he says, Eric, what is wrong? 
And the first thing that blurted out of my mouth is, I just want to marry Stephanie. (laughs) And my brother about fainted. You know what I mean? My My brother didn't know how to take that. And my dad looked at me and he goes, Eric, he said, I believe you know the Lord. I believe you're maturing in God. And he said, I don't believe that it would be healthy for you to put this off to other times for all kinds of reasons. He said, I'm going to give you my permission to do that. Now, I about fainted because <laughs> I was 20. I called Stephanie that night. I said, hey, you'll never believe this. God worked a miracle. My dad agreed. My dad gave me permission to marry Steph. So that started a process, right? That started a process. And part of that was getting a ring. Oh, man, I was so excited. I went with my dad. He knew somebody in Philadelphia. We went down, and we looked at all these rings, and I looked at the one, and the one that we got her, she still has to this day. I love it. It's a beautiful ring. And we were able to get that. And then I began to work through the process of talking to Wayne, right? I had already been down there. We had already met. Love them. Love mom. Uh, and so had phone calls because I was in Pennsylvania. They're down in Chattanooga. It was about a 14-hour drive. I planned it all out, this uh, um, proposal. And I had roses that I put. I had this little truck, you know, single bed, uh, uh, four-cylinder truck. Put the roses in a bucket, put them all, and I got them up in Pennsylvania. I don't know why I did that. I should have just bought them in Chattanooga, but I had it all figured out. I knew exactly how I was going to propose. Woodland Park Sanctuary was somewhat similar to this, a little bit more narrow, and they had a center aisle. And so what I had done is I had written a poem for every moment that she would be coming down the aisle, right? Sorry, get emotional about this. Uh, and, And I left a rose so that she would have to track it. Okay, and then I was going to hide in the choir loft. I don't know why I did that. That was stupid. I was still 20, you know. It's dark. You're hiding in the choir loft. There's candles and, like, doesn't that scare and creep out every girl in the history of mankind, you know, probably. So mom knew that what was going on, and I drove 14 hours to get down to Pennsylvania. Dad knew this was happening, and so it was after, uh, it was in the evening on Sunday night, and they had gone, and and they had uh, uh, made sure that there was an excuse for why Stephanie needed to come back to the church. So mom was kind of my partner in this thing, and uh, pulled up, and I had everything lined up. I had all my poems. I had rose petals. I had roses. I had poems for every step of the way, and I I was sitting there waiting in the choir loft and I I suddenly saw Stephanie. I saw lights come on in the the hallway and I saw the door kind of open. I saw somebody peek in and do this and then boom, gone. And I thought, are you serious? (laughs) Like the great moment of my life here. So she finally came back in because I think mom told her, you better go in there, get in. She's like, mom, there's candles, something's going on. I I don't know what's going on. She's like, go in there, go in there. So sure enough, here she comes, and she starts walking down. And I got on my knee, guys. You got to get on your knee, right? That's part of this process. And I asked her to marry me, and, and thank God she said yes, right? Well, we weren't married at that point. Now everything began to plan. Now we had to go, and we were in school, and we were doing all this stuff, and so she's planning, and... I remember coming down and it was going to be a Christmas wedding. So we had all the Christmas trees up and then I was helping carry the Christmas trees and put them in the, and all this planning that needed to take place until finally the big day came and we were married and um, we've enjoyed that ever since. 
folks, when we talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, what happens after the marriage? We had a reception. Right? We had all these people, probably nine-tenths of them I didn't even know. I had all these southern men coming up to me and saying, you better treat it right, brother. You know, you better do this right. And I said, of course, of course. What do you, what do you think, you know? And, uh, but we had this reception. We had all these pictures. They had the still, my, I'm still kind of bitter about this because they had the most awesome chocolate cake I have ever seen for the groom's cake. And I never got a bite of it. Not one. There was such a line of people that I had to shake hands with that I didn't even know who they were. All I could think of was the chocolate cake. <laughs> they were supposed to save me some, and then the staff at Willem Park ate it before I got home from my honeymoon. I was very bitter about this. You can pray for me, okay? In the midst of it all, there were different stages of what this, there was the, the father's permission, there was the whole proposal, there was the agreement, there was actually the wedding service itself, the marriage, and then there was a celebration. And in effect, that's what we have in Revelation chapter 19, verses seven and following. Let me give you three things this morning as we look at this. There's the church's celebration feast because we're focused here on the celebration. This is post the moment, post the wedding, so to speak. And I'll get there. But there's the church's clothing of fine linen. There's the righteous acts of the saints and the clothing that the bride is dressed in. There's the church's company invited to the feast. And that's a fascinating thing. You don't have to invite the bride to come to the wedding, folks. Think about that. Why, why, you don't invite the bride to come to the wedding. She's already there. The church is already there. Who's being invited to this wedding? That's an interesting point and an interesting question. But the first part of this is the church's celebration. Look at verse 7, chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself Ready. This is a part of the fourfold hallelujah. The fourth hallelujah is taking place, and this multitude begins to cry out with such an amazing praise and adulation of Christ and what he's done. And I believe at that point it's saints from all the different ages. I, th I think it's the Old Testament saints, it's the tribulation saints, it's clearly the church and the body of Christ. And I believe that the 24 elders are depicted here as falling on their faces at the throne before God in order to show that this multitude are the very various different groups of saints throughout the ages that God has saved, that are in heaven, that are praising the Lord, that he are part of the family of God, if you want to think of it that way. But it appears that because of the chronology of chapters 17 and 18, that this moment is actually taking place after the destruction of Babylon at the end of the tribulation. It's leading into the millennium. The millennium hasn't started yet, but this is the precursor of what's going to happen as a celebration with regard to the millennium. Some would suggest that this takes place in heaven, Clearly, this whole picture is in heaven. The question is, is the actual feast in heaven? And some would say, well, no, it's going to be on earth. And we really don't know. I mean, you, you can get into some of these things and get tied up into knots over some of these details. The, the point of the matter is that there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb, and it is for the church because the church is the bride of Christ. Whether it's in heaven or whether it's on earth, amen. <laughs> it's going to happen. And that's the point. There's going to be a praise 
time for the bride with the groom, for the church with Christ himself. And we know that the the church is the bride of Christ because Ephesians chapter 5 speaks to this uh, in language that is very clear and and shows and indicates uh, that just as a husband is to love his wife, so too Christ is the one who loves the church. And in this picture of marriage, we see that really the church is the bride of Christ. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The bride of Christ, the church, Christ the groom. It's interesting because here in this passage in Revelation, the word bride here really is the word gune, which it really refers to the wedding having already taken place. In other words, there has been a marriage already, and now we're getting into the celebration of that wedding, of that marriage. There were several stages in Jewish marriages. And we, in very many ways, follow the same pattern. There, first of all, is a parental agreement with a down payment given on behalf of the bride. Secondly, the groom comes to get his bride. And thirdly, there's a wedding feast celebrating the marriage. And you can see this coinciding with the program for the church that the Lord has. The first is that salvation as individuals are saved. There are people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. We're here today, Lord willing, all of us, because of that very reason. We have experienced God. We have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in effect, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment on that relationship, as a promise of that which is ours in Christ. I believe that the second part, the groom coming to get his bride, takes place at the rapture. And the rapture is where the Lord comes to gather the church to himself. The dead in Christ rise first, and we who remain will be caught up together in the air with them. We will receive our glorified bodies, and at that point, we will be with the Lord forever. And what a beautiful truth that is. So there's first the down payment. There is the salvation experience, so to speak, where we are positionally made right with Christ. We're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment on that relationship, looking forward to the future promises that God has given us in Christ. And then the rapture takes place and the church is caught up with the Lord in the air, the dead in Christ rising first. And as a result, we are changed. We are glorified. We have new bodies and forever will be with the Lord. Well, the third part of this is what we're seeing here in Revelation 19, which is the wedding supper of the Lamb, celebrating the marriage of the church and Christ himself. And what a beautiful picture that is. The second point here is that the church's clothing is of fine linen. The church's clothing, the bride's clothing, it was given In verse 8, to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, folks, we don't believe that salvation is by works. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Amen? 
So when he says, and he talks, he alludes to the righteous acts of the saints, he's not talking about when we are justified before God. He's talking about as believers, how we have walked with the Lord in the righteous acts that he's planned for us before the foundation of the earth. And whether we're saying yes to the Lord, walking by faith, experiencing his transforming ability in and through us to metamorphosize as well as manifest himself metamorphosize us and manifest himself through us. Namely, you can sum that up in one word, his love. (laughs) Because against love, there is no law. So the issue is, how are we walking in God's love? How are we walking with the Lord? How is the Lord being revealed in and through us? How are we being transformed? How is the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of love through our lives? And how does that impact our activity? Because against love, there is no law. And if we're walking rightly related to Christ, then that means our activity will reveal that. When he talks about the righteous acts of the saints, he's talking about the good deeds, the works, if you will, that are a result of the indwelling presence of the Lord himself. In fact, the very first thing he says, it was given to her. Do you realize that word give there is a grace word? It's not something we earned. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we can somehow get God to give us. It's given to us freely and abundantly, and it's directly as a result of grace. All works that literally come from God that are seen in and through our lives are not because we came up with them or that we could accomplish them, but rather because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in us and through us as we learn to die to self and say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was given to her, the bride, the body of Christ, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Folks, I would suggest this is not automatic. When you become a believer, it's not automatic that you're never going to struggle with sin again and you're going to have good works absolutely automatically throughout every area and arena in your life. (laughs) I would suggest this is absolutely not automatic. It is a will issue that we have to learn to yield and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, saying yes to him in the midst of life. We have to have our minds renewed. How do we do that? By getting into the word of God. And we begin to learn and grow in Christ. We mature. Maturity isn't that I stop struggling with sin. Maturity is that I've learned quickly that sin will defeat me and I need to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is able to defeat my sin. That's the issue. I'm always amazed when people talk about maturity as if somehow they've arrived. The fact of the matter is the closer you draw to Christ, the the more and more I believe you realize how absolutely carnal and wicked your flesh really is. You can see that pattern in the Apostle Paul. He understood that very clearly. The truly mature are the ones who recognize we need the Lord and have learned to run to him instinctually, quickly, without even necessarily thinking about it. Because we've been practiced, we've been trained in that. We realize that, hey, flesh, I have no strength to overcome my flesh. I need the Lord Jesus Christ to do that. The fine linen here he's speaking of, he says, is bright and clean. And I believe this really is speaking to the cleansing of the church after the judgment seat 
where all the imperfections are removed. When you talk about the rapture of the church, I believe sometime after the rapture of the church, before the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will come a point where, as believers, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's different than the great white throne judgment that takes place later on. We'll get there. That's really for unbelievers. We're talking about the Bema seat of Christ. We're talking about the judgment seat where the Lord will literally judge us for our works. In Ephesians, the Lord's desire is to present the church spotless and without wrinkle, having no moral defect. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, we know he says, John does, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When the rapture takes place, we're going to see the Lord in the air. We're going to be transformed to be like him. He is holy We will be made pure. Even the stain of sin will be removed from our lives. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Think about that. Bright here of the linen is speaking to brilliance. That word bright literally has the idea of brilliant or radiant, shining. Well, what's the deal with that? Well, I simply believe that however you walk on this earth, however I walk on this earth, the internal work that God is doing in each and every one of us one day will be revealed, and then we will be clothed in such a way that the greatness of God and his glory will be reflected off of us. That's an amazing thing, folks. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks to this a little bit. In verses 40 through 41, Paul writes, There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. And he's comparing our bodies now compared to the bodies, the glorified bodies that one day we will have. And in verse 41, he says, There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. And then he makes this statement, and it's fascinating to really think about this, for star differs from star in glory. Not necessarily all going to look exactly alike. When we talk about bright and we talk about clean, we're talking about the reflection of the glory of God off of us that we can praise God. And people, I believe, will be able to look at us and say, look at the work God has done in their lives. See, when we talk about the rapture and we talk about being caught up together with him, there's going to be a period of time where the judgment seat of Christ will take place and all the imperfections, all the fleshly things, all the things that would have marred us are going to be done away with, are going to be burned up. And the only thing that's going to remain apart from the very foundation, which is salvation in Christ, is going to be the works that were wrought by Christ in us, not because of our ability or because we deserve it, but rather because we decided and chose to trust the Lord and follow him, period. That's the issue. Grace works. I like to call it grace works. Grace works. Walvoord says it this way, the plural expression, the righteous acts, seem to refer to the righteous deeds wrought by the saints through the grace of God. Though all this has been made possible 
By what? The grace of God. Oh, man, so neat. We won't be able to take one credit for it. (laughs) And yet the Lord rewards us in the midst of it. What is he rewarding us for? All the activity? No, no. I believe first and foremost, he's rewarding us for the attitude. First and foremost, he's rewarding us for the persuasion to say, yes, Lord, I believe that in spite of my inability, you're able. And then God in us begins to empower us to do the very things that he not only commands us, but also leads us into. And we get to be transformed, metamorphosized by the Lord himself. And through us, his love begins to be revealed. And one day, that transformation that God is doing right now that is still cloaked to a degree will be revealed for all of heaven to see. It was given to the church. It was given to each and every one of believers to be clothed in linen, bright, pure, clean, shining, glorious. Why? Because it will reflect the glory of God. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 says, Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And then he makes this statement because here's the reason why he's bringing this up. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The Bema seat of Christ. To have our works judged. Get your eyes off your brother and start worrying about your own life. Now, you can take that in a balanced way. There's all kinds of ways to look at that. But fundamentally, why are we condemning? Why are we putting down our brothers and lifting ourselves up as if somehow we're better? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Has that got anybody lately? Have you thought about that? Do you realize this is coming, folks? The Lord's let us know ahead of time that we will go through this. And I don't know about you, but that's motivating, Uh, The problem is, is a lot of people, what they do is they'll take that motivation and they'll start creating a checklist of all the things they think they're supposed to be doing for God. And some of them they will even say are biblical. We all ought to be a part of the Great Commission. We all ought to be helping to make disciples, whether it's equipping or evangelizing or a, a combo of both. There's no question about that. We all ought to be loving one another. No question about that. How does that happen? How does it happen that when the Lord literally tests our work, our deeds, that it will remain and it won't burn up. Folks, I would suggest that if we're not yielded to Christ first, you can be doing all kinds of great things, but because it's not from the Lord, not being empowered by the Lord, it will not last. That's a little scary. I don't know about you, but that sometimes causes me to stop and think, what, what am I doing here? Lord, am I following you? Help me to just walk with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following deal with this in many different ways. And I love how Paul starts out this whole passage. He's talking about the division that's taking place in Corinth and talking about all the different fleshly attributes that this church had. And by the way, I'm teaching through 2 Corinthians on Wednesday night. And uh, you are welcome, okay? You're good. You can come. It's great. There's even food ahead of time. You know, it's hard to beat. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. Now, I want you to think about that. How do we make sure that something remains when it's tested by fire? 
I want to tell you, it's not because of our intelligence, it's not because of our degrees, it's not because of our, you know, time spent, it has nothing to do, it has everything to do with the grace of God. Everything to do with the grace of God. According to the grace of God, which was given to me. Verse 11, he says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, that's salvation in Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Folks, we're not talking about salvation in this passage. Salvation is the foundation, that even when the fire tests the work, if it all burns up, the foundation remains. The Lord Jesus Christ made a promise, if you believe in me, you will be saved. That's a done deal. Now the question is, as believers, how are we walking with the Lord and being transformed by him? How are we experiencing God? How do we know him, grow in him, and learn to follow him in such a way that when this moment takes place, there will be something that remains? That's essential, isn't it? I love what the Grace New Testament commentary says on this. These rewards, because we're talking about rewards here, are defined in Scripture as various crowns and positions of serving and ruling in eternity. Now, I'm, I don't know if they're the crowns, and we'll get into that at a different date. But I definitely agree that is the positions of serving and ruling in eternity. In other words, not everybody's going to be treated equal at the Bema seat of Christ in the sense that not everybody's gonna be rewarded the same. Everybody has the same opportunity because we all have Christ in us. We've all been given the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to live within us. We are without excuse because we've been given everything that we need to live godly in Christ Jesus. Everything we need to live godly in Christ Jesus. How? Because Christ himself has come to live within us. And so we walk day by day, moment by moment, and when we come up with excuses as to why we've sinned, that, that folks, we don't have those excuses. When we say, well, this is what I believe God's calling me to, but I, I can't really do it because, and we fill in the blank with our excuses, that's not really the case because Christ lives in us and Christ has all the gifts, Christ has everything that we need. If Christ calls us to it, he will provide what is necessary for us to follow him in the midst of it. It starts with whether I'm going to be willing to walk by faith and say yes to the Lord. As a result, when we learn to die to self and say yes, in spite of my inability, I recognize Christ's ability. Then I begin to experience God and I, I have my mind renewed and I get to experience his transforming power. I get to know him even more and learn what it means to step out on that water, to step out on the word and to trust the Lord in the midst of the storms of life and to watch God do things that I could never do in and of myself. And that will remain. When that is tested, it's not wood and hay and straw that'll burn up. Those are precious things that God knows about and that God will reveal 
through testing those works by fire. I believe part of the rewards will be how we serve the Lord in the coming kingdom. And, and I think that's an amazing thing. How are we going to serve the Lord in the coming kingdom? Have we been faithful to say yes to the Lord now? And God will reveal that. And there will be a reward in serving him in the future. Well, verse 9, the church's company invited to the feast. And I, this is interesting to me. He says to me, then he said to me, speaking of the angels, speaking to John, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Those invited to the marriage supper are said to be blessed. The bride's not invited to her own wedding feast. So this is not the church being invited, but rather these are the saints from the Old Testament as well as the tribulation. If you look back a few passages and just reread Revelation 19 verses 5 through 6, you see this great multitude, and I believe that includes the saints from all the ages. The bride is the church. Israel and the believers from the tribulation are invited to celebrate with the church the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is an invitation, and so therefore chronologically in this uh, letter, Regarding the end times, the, the wedding feast hasn't taken place yet. It's an invitation to come to it. At the end of chapter 19, we see the doom of Satan and the Antichrist and the prophet. And we're about to head into the millennium. We see the end of the tribulation with Armageddon and the Lord comes back, rescues his people, Israel. Satan is bound and thrown into the pit for a thousand years. The Antichrist and the prophet are in that sense destroyed Contrast in these two moments of the end of the tribulation and this uh, longing and looking forward to the celebration of the Lamb couldn't be more stark. The supper of the birds over the flesh of the rebellious at the end of Armageddon versus this blessing to all those who are invited to the supper, the marriage wedding, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Incredible to think through that. John's so overwhelmed by this. Can you imagine seeing all this, being given this vision? He's so overwhelmed by it, he actually falls down, begins to worship the angel who's helping to reveal these things. And I love the angel's response. Don't do that. Worship God alone. I'm, I'm just a servant, and I'm actually here to serve you and to serve those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture of humility that really is. In the midst of all this, the question really is, how are we walking day by day with the Lord? Do we have these things in mind? Do we think about the rewards? Do we think about what it is that God's calling us today? Maybe nobody else knows about it. You know, maybe, maybe nobody else sees it, but in your heart you know this is what God's calling and leading in, and, and this is what you are to be about, and you are simply faithfully yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God knows that. God sees that. 
I think it's amazing to think about being before the Lord in this moment of, uh, and we think of judgment as uh, many times a harsh word, but the reality of it is the Lord wants to reward us. And the beauty of the Bema Seat of Christ is that everything that was done in the flesh, everything that was not done in faith, anything in my life that was not according to God's ways is going to be burned up. Wow. Praise God for that. Anything that was out of faith by saying, yes, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work and I'm not sure how to, how to go about this, but I believe this is what you're saying. This is what your word says. I'm going to trust you and trust your word. I'm going to trust you to empower me to trust. See, when we begin to talk like that and work through that, and we begin to day by day walk in that way, that's when God is glorified. Those are the eternal things that God is doing in and through us that will be rewarded. They'll be revealed for what they are. Nuggets of precious, precious moments in our lives where we said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God did an eternal work in us and then through us. How are we walking today in light of this coming celebration? Are we getting ready for it? Are we making sure we keep our garments clean? Are we getting polluted and stained by the world? Are we so caught up in the things of the world that we're getting caught up in things that God, that's not God's will for us. How are we walking day by day, moment by moment with the Lord Jesus Christ, looking forward to this amazing marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, the church, celebrating forever what Jesus Christ did for us in saving us.